History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 488th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly, back in California. Yes, Kelly's (laughs) back in California for a few weeks. So we're doing the long distance recording again. And on this episode, we're featuring a location that was suggested by our listeners, Margaret Ward and Mike Stribal. And that's the Graffiti House. And this is a house that has that name because it does have a lot of, quote unquote, graffiti all over it. But it's not the kind of graffiti that we're used to nowadays with the spray paint and sometimes it's artwork. This is like people writing on walls dating back to the Civil War. It's a very fascinating sounding house. Very cool. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Kelsey, Zachary, Carly Ann with a K, and Kim. Thank you for joining our Facebook group. And now this moment, Noddity. Have you ever wished the climate of your home would be consistently cool in the summer and warm in the winter without the fees associated with air conditioning and forced heat? If so, then possibly cave living is for you. One location that cave homes can be found in is northern China in the lowest plateau area. And although many of the cave dwellings here are now tourist attractions, some of the caves called Dikinguayan in Mandarin still have full-time residents. The homes have a sunken courtyard entrance, while the remainder of the home is completely underground. They are considered a type of folk house adaptation to the natural terrain in this part of China, according to Lim Tai Wei, an adjunct senior researcher at the East Asian Institute at the National University of Singapore. The topography here ensures a naturally warm home during the winter and cool home temperatures in the summer. According to historical records, the creation of these homes began 7,000 years ago. The soil of the area has lent itself to the unusual success of this style of home. It is soft enough to easily excavate while still being firm enough to hold steady without additional support within the walls of the cave homes. According to Lim, some scholars outside China consider the dwellings to be a natural adaptation to the climate patterns in the region, with harsh and lengthy winters and extremely burning summer heat. Clearly, this style of home suits the occupant's weather-dependent needs well. However, having your home completely subterranean certainly is odd. Get out. And now, this month in history.
month of May on the 23rd in 1846, Arabella Mansfield was born in Des Moines County, Iowa. Her birth name was Belle Aurelia Babb, and she became the first female lawyer in the United States in 1869. During the Civil War, universities began accepting more women into their schools, and Arabella attended Iowa Wesleyan College in Mount Pleasant. However, her study of the law was independent from this. At the time, the bar exam was restricted to males at least 21 years old. Although Arabella did not attend law school, she had worked as an apprentice in her brother's law firm. She applied to take the exam and was accepted. Mansfield passed the bar with high scores. Once she accomplished that, Arabella challenged Iowa's state law excluding women from practicing law, and she won. Due to her efforts, Iowa became the first state to allow women to practice law. From there, Arabella Mansfield began Iowa's Women's Suffrage Society, and she worked with Susan B. Anthony to continue advancing the rights of all women. The Graffiti House is owned by the Brandy Station Foundation and served as a hospital during the Civil War. Soldiers left behind their marks on the walls of the second floor, which is the inspiration behind the house's name. These soldiers may have left behind their spirits as well, not only because some of them were injured and died, but because the Battle of Brandy Station took place here. Join us for the history and hauntings of the Graffiti House. One cannot talk about the graffiti house without talking about the Battle of Brandy Station. Kelly, we are slowly working our way through all of these Civil War battlefields. Yes, indeed. (laughs) And they're all haunted, of course. Brandy Station is in the state of Virginia. It was originally named just Brandy. The Battle of Brandy Station would be fought on June 9th, 1863. This was the largest cavalry battle ever fought in North America and launched the Greater Battle of Gettysburg, which would be fought in less than a month. The Confederates had a plan to move on to the Shenandoah Valley as they made their way to Pennsylvania. Major General, and they put his name as J.E.B., and those are initials, we're just going to call him Jeb, Stewart. He had brought his 9,500-man Confederate cavalry to Brandy Station where they camped along the Rappahannock River. They were exhausted and certainly not expecting a fight. The day before, Stewart had asked General Robert E. Lee to do a full field review of the cavalry. Most of the men complained that this would just feed Stewart's ego and tire out the horses, and maybe that's what it did. As the sun rose on that ninth day of June, Union officer General Major Alfred Pleasanton launched a surprise attack on the Confederates at Brandy Station. Pleasanton had split his ranks in two, one under Brigadier General John Buford and the other under Brigadier General David McMurtry Gregg. Buford's group crossed the river at Beverly's Ford and Greg's crossed downstream at Kelly's Ford. Your name sure keeps coming up in all of these episodes. <laughs> this left the Confederates surrounded. One thing on the side of Stewart is that he had five brigades, which was much larger than the Union forces had expected. 
a Confederate brigade was awakened by the sound of gunfire and rode towards the battle on bareback, partially dressed. Yikes. It's like roll out of bed and just go. (laughs) The Confederates killed a Union colonel and pushed back the Union forces. The Confederates formed a line while the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry attacked the Confederate artillery at St. James Church. This was a bad move, and this regiment would suffer the greatest casualties. Although many Confederates fighting at the church would later refer to this as a brilliant and glorious charge. Some say it was the greatest of the war. Typically, the cavalry would dismount and conduct hand-to-hand battle like the infantry when they got to the area of engagement. But the 6th Pennsylvania conducted a completely mounted fight. That just seems like it'd be so much harder because you're up above the battle. Right. You know, Kelly, as we do a lot of these Civil War battles, we talk about the different regiments and brigades and that kind of thing. And of course, we learned over time what each one of those terms means. And also just how important it is that people would identify with these different groups. Because when you go to somewhere like the Gettysburg Battlefield and you see all of the monuments and memorials they have there, you realize just how many of these different brigades and regiments were there and how they were bonded as a group and how important it was for them to be like, this is who I'm with. And I don't know how they kept track of all that stuff. The Southern artillery was blocking the direct route to Brandy Station, so General Buford decided to advance near an area called U Ridge. This was higher ground, but was already occupied by Confederate Brigadier General W.H.F. Rooney Lee, and Buford sustained heavy losses before managing to take a stone wall in front of the ridge. Then the Confederates pulled back from the ridge. Buford wasn't sure why, but then he was informed that General Gregg had finally shown up with his men. They'd managed to find a back way that was unguarded that led all the way into Brandy Station. Between where Gregg was located and the skirmish between Buford and Stewart was Fleetwood Hill. Stewart had used the hill for his headquarters, but now all that was there was a six-pounder howitzer, and it didn't have reliable ammunition. Can you imagine having this huge weapon and you can't even use it? No, that's so frustrating, I'm sure. Both sides would now enter into a series of confused charges and countercharges across Fleetwood Hill. The fighting was fierce before the Confederates were able to clear the hill for the final time. Pleasanton called for a general withdrawal, and this ended the battle. The Union surprise attack had failed, and Stuart retained the field. Part of what worked against the Federals was the terrain. This was a very hilly area and taxing on the horses. Buford knew his men and their mounts couldn't take much more, and the Confederates got some late backup from Colonel Thomas Munford, which solidified his decision to leave the field to the Confederates. The battle lasted around 10 hours. This had been the largest cavalry engagement in America. Union casualties were 907, and Confederate casualties were 523. Despite the win, the Confederate cavalry's superiority was now gone. There was a house nearby that was used as a field hospital. That house is today known as the Graffiti House. The house was strategically located near the train depot for the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. The house was owned by lawyer James Barber, who was the brother of the railroad's president, John S. Barber Jr. It was built in 1858 and stands two stories. Barber served on the staff of Lieutenant General Richard S. Ewell, until January 1863. Barber also owned a house up on a hill near the battlefield that is called Beauregard Farm in honor of the Confederate general. 
It still stands today. This served as headquarters for Jeb Stuart and his Confederate Cavalry Division. General Robert E. Lee visited Beauregard during the battle to scan the fighting on the nearby Fleetwood Hill. The graffiti house was also used by General Stuart as a headquarters. The house also probably served as a field hospital after the Battle of First Bull Run or First Manassas. And there's some graffiti in the house that dates to the Second Manassas Campaign in August 1862. During the winter of 1863 into 1864, the Union set up camp in Culpeper County, and that's where the house is located, and they occupied their graffiti house. The house was headquarters to Brigadier General Henry Prince while the Union Army was in pursuit of the Army of Northern Virginia after its retreat from the Battle of Gettysburg. So this house saw a lot of action during the Civil War. Clearly. So the graffiti house played host to both sides of the Civil War. The people who stayed here left behind their marks on the walls. On the second floor, the plaster walls are covered with drawings, doodles, and words made with pencil and charcoal. Some of the words are basically autographs with soldiers writing their names on the walls. One of those autographs belongs to General Jeb Stuart. There are also the names of Lieutenant William J. Marshall, Colonel John Egbert Farnham, and Sergeant Henry Thomas. They would make inscriptions commemorating their units and their battles. After the war, other people would move into the house and they covered over the graffiti with wallpaper and paint. In 1993, a big renovation project was started, but it was quickly halted because the graffiti was discovered. I can't imagine that they started peeling this wallpaper off the walls and then you find this underneath it. And then you have some people who are probably just like, oh my gosh, look at this, you know, junk written all over the walls and starts to take, you know, they start to take it off. And then somebody realizes, wait a minute whoa, we've got dates here, units here. This looks like it goes back to the Civil War. Yeah, put the brakes on. Stop. Yeah, it's kind of like, to me, it'd be like finding a treasure buried somewhere if you're into history. Unfortunately, some of it had already been removed before the project was started, but much still remains thanks to the efforts of expert architectural conservator Christopher Mills. The nonprofit organization, the Brandy Station Foundation, purchased the house in 2002, and they are the ones who continue to preserve the house and offer tours. There's a museum here, and this is the visitor center for the Brandy Station battlefield. One of the items on display had been taken away from the home as a part of a private collection of Civil War artifacts, but it was returned in 2004. This is called the Maryland Scroll and features an unfurling piece of parchment with a list of names of men who would later fight at the Battle of Kelly's Ford. Look at that. You have a battle with your name in it, Kelly. Very nice, I think. <laughs> <laughs> there are three rooms on the second floor. One is named the Marshall Room in honor of Lieutenant James Marshall, a Confederate officer. He was killed during the Battle of Gettysburg. The best piece in this room is a sketch of a downcast-looking Confederate soldier. Another room is the Bowman Room named for Sergeant Allen Bowman of the 12th Virginia Cavalry. In this room, one can find a charcoal drawing called the Dancing Lady. The final room is the Stewart Room named for General Jeb Stewart, and it is in here where his name is written on the wall. There also is an example of a clash between the North and the South. A Confederate wrote, Yanks caught hell, and over that is written, United States of America. So I like that. Yeah, you got the Confederates in there first, and then the Union comes in later and they wrote over the top of their stuff. It reminds me of an adult saying to a child, use your words. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Here coming up in June of 2023, the Battle of Brandy Station will commemorate its 160th anniversary. The house features tours when volunteers are available to host them. In October, the house showcases its haunts. The whole area has spirits hanging out because of the battle. The Brandy Station battlefield has two haunted locations, Fleetwood Hill and the ruins of St. James Church. The St. James Church stood during the battle, but was torn down six months later by Union soldiers so they could build a winter camp for themselves. The church saw part of the battle. The phantom sounds of battle and disembodied voices are heard at the church ruins and on Fleetwood Hill. The Fleetwood Church in Brandy Station is also haunted. The church was built over the town cemetery where many soldiers killed in the battle were buried. Who's building a church over a cemetery? You're supposed to have them next to each other, but not over. Bad idea. (laughs) Right? The church was used from 1881 to 1974. Today it is being refurbished, but is in a state of disrepair. Steve is the man who bought the church and is working on it. He claims that the spirit of a little girl that is usually at the graffiti house has come to the church sometimes and moves things, and her disembodied singing has been heard. Investigators have captured EVPs of hymns being sung in the church. Pictures of figures in the windows have been taken. Ryan Martinez, who produces the Witching Hour TV show and investigates with Argos Paranormal, investigated the Fleetwood Church in 2020. Martinez said, We were hearing a lot of disembodied growls with our own ears, and these were growls that did not sound like they were coming from an animal. And whenever we would hear these growls, we would go, if that was you that just growled at us, can you go ahead and turn on the mini mag light that we have on the floor? And spontaneously, the light would turn on. Wow. I don't know who's growling at them and why. Could you make, you know, use your words like we were saying earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you're growling in a church that's over a cemetery, I'm thinking maybe you're not a good spirit. Yeah, I would imagine. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Wow, this year is going by so fast. Father's Day is coming up. Some of you won't have your fathers around for this Father's Day. Kelly and I have certainly had to deal with the mortality of our fathers this year. And that's why we want to give our fathers a gift that is truly unique and meaningful and something that is really a gift to our whole families. A gift that not only makes him feel special and loved, but gives us more information about their lives. For example, it's really cool when my dad was growing up, he used to work at a garden center and they would have these big bags of potting soil that are really hard. And he would practice punching on them because he wanted to get into boxing. And he did box for quite a while. And he even taught me a few moves when I was growing up. A gift that will make your dads feel special and loved is StoryWorth. This is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. Every week, StoryWorth emails out whoever you've sent this gift to a thought-provoking question. And it can be something that they have generated, or you can make up your own questions as well. Maybe it's something like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? After a year, StoryWorth compiles all of the answers to those questions, so all of your loved ones' stories. And you can even throw in some photos if you want to. And they put it into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share for generations to come. Give all the dads in your life a unique, meaningful gift you'll all cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you'll save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash history goes bump. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash history goes bump 
to save $10 on your first purchase. StoryWorth.com slash History Goes Bump. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Unexplained activity has been occurring at the Graffiti House for decades. The house embraces this fact by hosting Ghost Hunting 101 classes, offering psychic readings, and hosting ghost hunts with Culpeper Paranormal. One of the volunteers at the house named Della Edrington invited the Virginia Paranormal Institute to come to the house in 2007 to investigate. The house did not disappoint. One of the investigators named Jackie Hicks felt something grab her firmly by the wrist. A journalist that was with them named Donnie Johnston watched as a picture frame moved on its own. The ghost hunting equipment all registered activity that the group described as off the chart. One of the more popular ghost stories told is about two young girls who were living in the house in the 1930s. They had just finished decorating their Christmas tree in an upstairs bedroom when something very paranormal occurred. Some decorative balls began to swirl on their own in a counterclockwise movement, and this wasn't caused by any normal force like wind or a heating vent. Culpepper Paranormal Investigations posted a picture captured from their SLS camera in June of 2022 and wrote, This figure anomaly appeared directly at the top of the stairs. We also have the full video of this occurrence as well. It only manifested for a few seconds before disappearing. It was not picked up at any other time during the night. Could it be a passing through spirit of a soldier who once resided in the location? We're left unsure. Culpepper has investigated here many times. In the Jeb Stewart room, they captured the EMF going off on video. They asked if whoever they were talking to wore a gray uniform or a blue uniform, and they captured an EVP saying blue. These videos are up on YouTube. I'm sure if you do some kind of a search on there for this, it's really cool to watch because they just have the highlights. And sure enough, you can hear these EVPs clear as day. They are class A. Love it. They asked if there was a Miranda there or a Melinda And an EVP said, Melinda, now I don't know if they have information about a woman who had died here or something, and that's why they were asking for those particular names. And as a double verification, the group asked if there was a man or woman speaking with them, and an EVP said, woman. In another room, they had a REM pod set up and used some whiskey as a trigger item. One of the investigators said that she was going to pour the whiskey, and she did pour some into a shot glass, and the REM pod started going off. Then she asked if they wanted to play cards with her, and it lit up two of the lights on the REM pod. She decided to run a test to verify that nothing else was setting off the REM pod, and she said she was going to count to three. Once she said the number three, the REM pod and a mel meter next to it went off simultaneously. It was really, really cool interactive activity. I have no doubt they were interacting with something there. A group asked if there was a soldier with them and the REM pod went nuts with three lights going off. And Kelly, you and I know REM pods don't go off a lot. It seems like that when you're watching a lot of these paranormal shows. But in our experience, rarely have we had REM pods go off when we're at a location and they have the four lights on the top. You're never going to get all four of those lights to go off hardly ever. And so to get three of them at once pretty amazing stuff. And they even made the comment on the video because I think they had a couple of newbies with them or people who were, you know, kind of joining in on the tour. 
and they explain to them, wow, the REM pod usually doesn't even go off. So to have it, you know, actually going off in response to things we're asking it to do is pretty amazing. Yeah, very cool. I'd want to be part of that investigation for sure. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. They then asked if he was at the Battle of Fleet Hill and an EVP answered, yes. The entity also used the REM pod to indicate that he had been one of Stewart's men. So cool. On another investigation in 2017, the group asked if John Bowman was there and an EVP answered, Dr. John. During a spirit box session, they asked if the spirit lived in the house and they got a male saying no and then a female saying, I do. (laughs) I love it. They asked if Jeb Stewart was there and the box said, Jeb Stewart. They asked something that they thought was the doctor if he was only a doctor during the war between the states and they just said they got an EVP anomaly. But it sounded like, I don't think so, to Diane. Yeah, so on the screen during the videos, they would put what word they thought was being said, whether it was coming from the spirit box or the EVP. And during this one, it just said that it was some kind of an anomaly. They couldn't understand what it said. But I listened to it over and over again. And I'm like, I think it's saying I don't think so. Interesting. In 2015, they caught a really weird light anomaly that bounced around the room. It did look ghostly and was definitely see-through. You could see the door frame through it. In the Bowman room on another investigation, they asked how old the spirit was and the EVP said 76. They asked if the officer stayed in the house and an EVP said yeah. And this was funny. A couple of investigators were in the bathroom doing an EVP session and they asked if there was anyone in there with them and the EVP asked, who are you hiding from? I thought that was so funny because I was like, you could imagine the spirits going, why are they both in the bathroom? They, I don't know, maybe they closed the door or something. So yeah, hiding from weirdos who would hang out in the bathroom. (laughs) The graffiti house is very unique in that it captures a part of Civil War history that's not very common. What was it about the house that enticed the soldiers to write on the walls and leave their marks for us to find in the future? It seems as though some of those soldiers have decided to stay in the afterlife. Is the graffiti house haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, Kelly, this sounds like a really cool place to check out up there in uh, Virginia. Virginia's got all kinds of great places. This is true. Just another road trip we got to plan. Yeah. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you have some feedback you'd like to send us, you can send that to historyghostbump at gmail.com or we take your comments pretty much anywhere. And we do have a few to share here with you. Susan and the crew said, my girls and I went to New Orleans for a long weekend. We stayed at the Hotel Provincial, which was a Civil War hospital that specialized in amputations. We found out after we booked it that it was haunted. Bonus. The first night, my daughter left her Garmin watch off overnight, and it showed a spiked heart rate and over a thousand active minutes, and it wasn't on her. So that's pretty weird. Yeah, it's very crazy. She's left it off before, and nothing has ever happened like this. The third night, my other daughter woke up and thought she saw a ghost hovering over her. Very cool. We backed out of the gates of the hotel this morning when we left and asked the spirits not to follow us home. Now, that's a technique I've never heard before. I've, you know, we do our whole, you can't <laughs> right. follow us home. You got to stay here. But I've never heard the backing out, you know, saying, Same. don't piggyback. <laughs> so that was cool. We talked about the provincial in one of our episodes when we were in New Orleans and we did the tour with Cedric. Yes, we did. That's actually one of the places where we said, if we're going to be back there, that's where we're going to stay. So. We were going to stay. Yeah, it's multiple different. I think they've 
absorbed multiple buildings right in that area and made them all into the one hotel. Right. Christina and the crew wrote, hey, all first time posting and I don't know where to start. My two and a half year old girl talks about seeing a ghost in her room. Night night ghost. Bye bye ghost, etc. I'd love to know how the two and a half year old got ghost in her vocabulary. That's interesting. <laughs> right. We also have an abandoned house next to ours that has been empty for 20 plus years. And she always points to the windows and says something about ghosts, too. <laughs> oh, no. Interesting. So then she asked, anyone else experience anything similar? Slightly freaked out, slightly proud. (laughs) So Tara responded, my brother always claimed he saw a shining woman at the foot of his bed before he went to sleep and it made him feel safe. Mom and I determined he was seeing an angel. Steph responded, my daughter used to talk to people on the subway in Glasgow where there was never anyone there. Wow. And then Star made a comment under our Haunted New South Wales show that we just dropped last week. She said, I love this episode. My father passed away. Tomorrow makes one year. And his favorite group was the Beatles. I've never heard their music, which I found stunning. And their group name has popped up more than at any other time this month. I got into an Uber and Hey Jude was playing. This was the song that was played as we released his ashes. So naturally, I cried. Then during my last week of school, another student was listening to his headphones and was singing, Hey Jude. Now, oh I, get on, now I get on this podcast and the moment Naughty is about the Beatles. I do believe he's just telling me that he will be with me tomorrow as I walk across the stage to get my associate's degree. <laughs> and now I feel like I need to apologize for when I wrote that. I said, if you've never heard of them, you're probably living under a rock in on some remote island. <laughs> so sorry about that. So Kelly doesn't really mean that you're on a remote island underneath a rock somewhere. <laughs> Kelly, these are the kind of paranormal stories that we absolutely love. I feel like if there was some way I could go back and collect all of these family interactions It would make such a spectacular show, just revealing how often our loved ones, whether you believe that, you know, you go to heaven or wherever after you die, clearly when it's these family interactions, we get a feeling that there's a way that you can come back and forth. Like you might step over into heaven, but it doesn't mean that you're completely gone, that there must be a way that you can come back occasionally and let people know I'm still here, still watching out for you. Yes, indeed. Another cool thing about these family interactions is, uh, Kelly, we've had a lot of people who've been keeping positive thoughts and prayers going for our dads. And some of those people include my clients. So I was talking to my one client about my dad. And before I tell this story, we'll just go ahead and update everybody and let you know that things are moving in a very positive direction. In both of these cases, your dad is uh, out of the hospital. He's out of the rehab center. He's been doing really well. And we're getting ready to transition your dad over to independent living at an assisted living facility. So that stuff's going great. And that's why you're there right now. And then my dad, as everybody knows, they removed a tumor from him that was cancerous. And there still was a little bit of cancer that was left in his body. But after meeting with the radiologist and the oncologist, they decided that it was so low grade and so little of it that they're not going to do any radiation or chemo. They're just going to keep an eye on him every six months. So that was extraordinarily great news. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, I was talking to my one client about this and early on things are kind of touch and go and stuff. And she was like, well, you know, I had this really cool thing happen with my dad because she goes, you know, people go on and 
move on to heaven and that kind of thing. And she said, one night I had this really, really vivid dream and it was my dad and I could see him clearly. And then there were like these three people that I couldn't see quite so well behind him. And I'm thinking, oh, she's going to say, you know, they kind of stepped forward and it was like a grandfather or an uncle or something like that. And she goes, and I could see that my dad was looking down at something in his hand and it looked like he was writing on it or, or marking on it. And she goes, finally, the three figures that were behind him came into a better view. And she goes, I realized that it was the three men that he usually would have as his grouping for going golfing. And she goes, and I think what he was doing when he was looking down at his hand as he was marking, you know, par, that kind of thing. (laughs) The swings, how many strokes it was. (laughs) And so I was like, well, that's really cool, you know, because we talk about that we when we pass on and go to heaven, I, you know, you hope you get to do some of the things that you love to do here, you know, that it's not just bouncing around on clouds, playing harps and singing. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And she said, I've heard from people who have been and come back and stuff that there's amusement parks there, you know, you get to go fishing and hiking. And then she goes, it's just like it is here. It's just perfect. Awesome. So I thought that was a really cool dream that she had had and that she had shared that with me and that he was there with all of his golf buddies probably golfing. Well, we love that everybody joins us here on our podcast. Want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. One thing on the side of Stewart is that he had five brigades. Brigade. Brigade. Is that he had five brigades. Oh my God. <laughs> it's a tough word. Believe no, me, it's I'm not. really. It's just my mouth. <laughs> I've been really having to focus because this was one of the largest cavalry battles ever. <laughs> and I always end up saying cavalry. And then everybody's like, it's cavalry. <laughs> The Confederates formed a line while the 6th Pennsylvania Cavalry. Oh, shit. Now I'm doing it. (laughs) Now you're in my head with it. Sorry. (laughs) And there's some graffiti in the house that dates to the second Manassas campaign. Campaign? Campaign? (laughs) Campaign, campaign. It was a campaign. It was so painful. It was a painful campaign. Yeah. For the campaign. Something. Culpepper has investigated. Culpepper. Culpepper. Cole pepper. Popper pepper? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, who can say pepper?